0: Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Once again, good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. So great to have you here. As Pastor Dan mentioned and Zach on the video announcements, today I'd like to begin a brand new four-part series entitled get in the game and if you think we chose that title just because this weekend signals the start of yet another nfl football season you're absolutely right that's the reason we did that and i know some of you are not football fans in fact some of you hate football and you don't get the hype and if we didn't play another football game ever it'd be too soon for you I understand however according to the latest statistics two-thirds of all Americans watch NFL football and more and more women are jumping on the bandwagon and so we simply can't ignore it or disregard it it's one of those subjects we have to talk about and so I'd like to begin this message and this series by showing you a, a football video clip This clip comes from the movie Rudy. Anybody ever see that movie? All right, a lot of you. If you haven't seen the movie Rudy just yet, you can't uh, complain about me spoiling it for you because the movie is 25 years old. You had plenty of time to see it since 1993. Okay, Rudy's a true story. It's based on the life of Daniel Rudiger, or Rudy for short. And Rudy grew up just outside of Chicago in the late 1960s, and his childhood dream, what he dreamed about from the time he was a little kid, just five or six years old, was to play football at the University of Notre Dame. But there were a few challenges to that dream, three of them to be exact. The first challenge was Rudy's grades. They were way below average. In fact, they were unacceptable. Number two challenge: he didn't have any money, and his parents didn't have the money to send him to college. And challenge number three: he was five foot six and weighed 155 pounds. And he played defense. And the preferred weight and height at that time for his position was six foot three, 220 pounds or two rootties. <laughs> but he didn't give up and he refused to be denied, and he did not abandon his dream. So after graduating from high school in 1972, same year I graduated, he made his way to South Bend, Indiana, and he applied to Notre Dame College as a student, where he was promptly rejected. In fact, his grades weren't even close to their academic requirements. So what Rudy did is he enrolled in a nearby junior college to work on his grades. And he met a guy by the name of D-Bob. D-Bob became his close friend. And one of the reasons why he liked D-Bob so much is because D-Bob was a smart guy. And he began to tutor Rudy. And after uh, tutoring him for several months and his grades did not improve, that's when D-Bob had him tested, and lo and behold found out that Rudy did indeed have a learning disability. So for the next two and a half, three years, Rudy worked really hard to overcome his disability. And all during that time, whenever he had a chance, every time there was a new semester, he applied at Notre Dame, and every time he applied, he was rejected. Rejected, rejected. And then during the last semester of transfer eligibility, his last shot at it, he was finally accepted, and he became a Notre Dame student. What do you think was the first thing he did? He made a beeline to the football field and he tried out for the team. Guess what happened? He didn't make it. It wasn't even close. But because he was so persistent and he was such a hustler and even better talker, he convinced the head coach to give him a spot on the practice squad. Now, as a member of the practice team, he went to practice each and every day And he got his brains kicked in. That's that's what happened. He stood across the line from the real players and got them ready to play in the games. And he took a beating every day. But he never complained about the long hours or the bumps and the bruises or everything that he had to go through. He showed up for practice and he did his job each and every day. And after all of that effort and sacrifice, he begged his coach to put him in one game for that year. Just one out of the 12 games to let him dress for that game. Because as a practice squad person, he couldn't dress for the games. He just wanted to get out on the field in full uniform and prove to his dad and his brothers that he was a Notre Dame football player. But the coach refused. The coach didn't put him on the roster for any of the games. And when the last game of the season was there and they looked at the board and saw that his name wasn't on the roster for that game, one by one, all of the senior members of the varsity team, they walked into the coach's office and they laid their jerseys down on the desk and they said, you know what, coach, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to sit this one out. I can't play. Let Rudy play in my place. They all said it the same thing. So the coach was forced to put him on the roster for that game, that last game of the season. But he didn't play him. Rudy stood on the sidelines the whole game. He watched from the sidelines until the closing seconds of the game when the players and the fans and even some of the coaches began to chant his name because they all knew his story and they all loved Rudy. They began to chant, Rudy, Rudy. Rudy, Rudy. And finally, the coach, he felt the pressure. And with just a few ticks left on the clock, he sent Rudy into the game, and the fans went wild. And you're going to probably figure this out when you see the clip, Rudy's number 45. Um, but let's watch it together, okay? Okay. To me, this is such an inspirational story because Rudy worked so hard. He went against the odds in order to fulfill his dream and it certainly wasn't a walk in the park. And once he got into the game, he made a big play and he proved to himself, to his coaches, to his teams and to everyone that he belonged there. You see, he wasn't content, he wasn't satisfied to sit from the sidelines or to wash from the sidelines. He wanted the field to play. That was his heart's desire to get in the game, to mix it up with the big boys, and to experience the thrill of that game. And this is what God has designed for each and every one of us not football, but the field of play. As we've told you many, many times, and it's laced throughout the New Testament, God has given each and every one of us a special talent. It's called a spiritual gift. And Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us with the spiritual gift that God has given to us, He's given it to us so that we can build up the body of Christ or that the church of Jesus Christ might be built up. That's the reason why He's placed His own spirit and His own gifting in each one of us because we belong to Him and we belong to the church. And the church needs us. And yes, I know we're all busy extremely busy these days and we all have families and we all have jobs and careers we all have hobbies and special interests but don't forget that our ultimate goal is to make a difference in the world that is what God has called the church of Jesus Christ to do to make a difference and we can only do that when our faith becomes our top priority When we stand before the Lord and raise our hand and say, I'm ready, God. Here I am. Use me. Send me. Put me in the game. That's the only way that we're ever going to be able to fulfill the purpose of God for the church today. If as believers all we ever do is stand on the sidelines, if we're content with the sidelines, then I promise you this. It's not going to be long before you lose interest in what God is calling us to do, and you end up just going through the motions. Believers, yes. People who live Christian lives, yes. But with very little passion. God has called us to get involved. All right, let's look at a few verses of Scripture. I'm going to ask you to please turn to the book of Nehemiah, or you can follow along on the big screen. There's a few verses that I'd like to read, beginning with Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, when wine was brought to the king, I, Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. All right, that's good right there for now. In the opening verses of this particular passage in the book of Nehemiah, we're told that drink or wine was brought to the king. And when that drink was brought to the king, Nehemiah himself intercepted it, took it, and then he went ahead and brought it to the king. Anyone understand or know why Nehemiah did that? Well, the very last verse of Nehemiah chapter 1 gives us the answer because in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 11, we're told Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. That was his assignment. And as the cupbearer, he had oversight of the dinner table. That means anything that was brought to the king for human consumption, whether it was food or drink, it first passed through the hands of Nehemiah and oftentimes through his lips. It was Nehemiah's responsibility to make sure that the wine that was being brought to the king or any drink that was being brought to the king wasn't laced with a deadly poison. Now, you might hear that description and think that the office of cupbearer was a dreadful or undesirable job. Like it was given to a lowly servant, someone who was expendable, and someone who had very little worth or value to the king. But that was not the case at all the cupbearer was a position of great influence and power. It was one of the highest ranking officials' responsibilities of the king's royal court. In fact, the cupbearer was the most faithful and most dependable person on the king's staff. You see, the king trusted the cupbearer with his life, literally. And when a favorable cupbearer was found, the king went to great lengths to ensure that that cupbearer stood around and stayed for years and years. And so the cupbearer was paid handsomely, and he enjoyed a lot of palace perks, or she, whoever it was. And so as you can imagine, everybody wanted to be cupbearer to the king. And that's the enviable and highly sought-after position that Nehemiah had in the Persian Empire. But please remember with me, Nehemiah, he wasn't Persian. He was an Israelite. And he was a victim of the Babylonian captivity when his family members, years earlier, were ripped from their hometown of Jerusalem and forced to serve in a foreign land. But God favored Nehemiah in Persia. And with God's blessing, Nehemiah did really well for himself. He became extremely wealthy and influential. I mentioned that to you just a few moments ago. And so years later, when the captivity was over and the word was given to the Israelites that they could finally return to their homeland and begin to rebuild, guess what Nehemiah said? Uh, No, thank you. I'm doing real well here in Persia. I'll just stay right here if you don't mind. I'm not going anywhere. And that's what he chose to do. A lot of his family members and his ancestors, a lot of the people that he knew that had been taken into captivity, they went back to Jerusalem, but Nehemiah, he stayed in Persia because he was cupbearer to the king. But of all the rotten luck, a short time after that, the king just happened to be watching uh, Fox News And one of the affiliate stations there in Jerusalem ran a feature story. And here's what the report said. It's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 3. Here's what he heard coming out of Jerusalem Those from Jerusalem who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Please see with me that they weren't in trouble, they were in. We got that verse? Oh, here we go. They weren't in trouble. They were what? And they were in great trouble. And they weren't just in great trouble. They were also in disgrace. And so he broke down and he wept. And for several days, he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah was heartbroken. He couldn't believe what was taking place in his hometown. He was there in Persia. Everything was going great. I mean, he had a good job. Family was well taken care of. He thought he'd just stay there. God is blessing me. God's favoring me. For some reason, God has decided to promote me, and here I am. But then he heard what was taking place in his hometown. He heard about the people of God, and he spent some time in prayer. And after that time of earnest, faith-filled prayer... The same kind of prayer that we experienced this past Wednesday during our prayer and praise time. And if you were there, you know exactly what I was talking about because we reached out to heaven and heaven answered back. I mean, the presence of God showed up. And that's precisely what happened for Nehemiah. After he prayed to God and after he fasted and he cried out, and mourned and, and just waited upon the Lord, the Lord responded to Nehemiah and the Lord answered him. And do you remember what he said to Nehemiah in so many words? Get in the game, Nehemiah. It's time to get in the game. It's time to go to work. You see, from every perspective and all vantage points, Nehemiah was doing really well in Persia. He had it made. I've mentioned this to you a couple of times now. God favored him. God blessed him. And the reason that God blessed him so much is because that's the kind of God we serve. He's a God of blessing. He's a covenant-keeping God. And when you enter into a covenant relationship with him, he opens the windows of heaven. And he pours out blessing after blessing after blessing. He did that for Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a God-fearing man. And so he had there in Persia a coveted career. He was doing really well for himself. And his family, his wife and his children, they all enjoyed the financial blessings and benefits this world has to offer. But how many know Persia wasn't Nehemiah's source? God was. And God was in control of his life. And there was kingdom of God work that necessitated Nehemiah's involvement. And the kingdom assignment that Nehemiah had been given, the very purpose that God had given to Nehemiah from the time that he was born, was not there in Persia. It was in Jerusalem. That's what God had called Nehemiah to. Even though he had set him up in Persia, even though everything was going good for him, his real call, his objective that God had given to him, the ultimate assignment, was in Jerusalem. And the same is true for every single one of us. Our God-given assignment, our kingdom purpose, it's not cut to the Persian king. It's not a life of wealth and influence in the world. As attractive as that might be, and as infatuated as we have become with the American dream, God has so much more in store for us than what this world has to offer. We haven't even begun to understand the way that God wants to lead us and to bless us and to anoint us. And in response to what God was saying to Nehemiah, He left the land of Persia, along with all the comforts. He left that all behind. He walked away from it all, and he went back to his hometown to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And when you read through the book of Nehemiah, that's when you find out he was able to accomplish some amazing things. Nehemiah did an absolutely tremendous job. He was able to rebuild the wall. He was able to restore uh, the honor of Israel among the surrounding nations. He brought back a desire to serve God. He, he, He initiated a spiritual awakening among the people. And there was just so many great things that Nehemiah was able to do. I mean, Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem and he shined in all that God had purposed for his life. And so tell me, who helped Nehemiah do all these things? Who made Nehemiah great? Absolutely, it was God. In fact, whenever we're asking questions like that, the answer is always God. God was the one who went before him. God favored him. God made sure that he was following his leading in his guidance. But I want you to understand, and here's the point of this message this morning. This is, this is what I want you to hear now, so if you drifted off, come on back. <laughs> Even though God helped Nehemiah to accomplish his mission in Jerusalem, there was somebody else in the picture. There was someone else who contributed to Nehemiah's success. Do you know who that was? It was the king. King Artaxerxes. It was the king who God had shown favor to and allowed Nehemiah to win his heart. King Artaxerxes, he loved Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a special man to him. He wasn't just a servant. He wasn't just someone who was doing a job for him. He wanted to see that Nehemiah would become successful. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. The king asked Nehemiah, what is it that you want? Nehemiah responded and said, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, you knew this was serious stuff, it's the queen right there. So the king and queen are sitting there. And the king asked Nehemiah, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. Please note that it was obvious that the king did not want to lose Nehemiah. And he was extremely concerned about how long this journey would take and how long before Nehemiah would be back. But when you read the story, you also find out that King Artaxerxes didn't say to Nehemiah, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I like you, but there's no way you can go. There's this absolutely, no I, I can't uh, afford to, to let you go right now. I need you here in Persia. I got to have you as my cupbearer. He didn't say that. He cut him loose. He gave him permission to go. And when he did, that's when Nehemiah got really bold. And in response to the king asking him, what is it that you want? Here's what Nehemiah said in the next few verses, uh, beginning with verse 7. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. Nehemiah said, If it pleases a king, may I have handwritten letters stamped with your royal seal, written to all the governors of the land, so that they will provide me safe conduct and travel until I arrive in Judah. And, not just that, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. And furthermore, the king sent his top army officers and the entire Persian cavalry with me. Let me make this very clear. I'm going to say this a couple of times so that nobody misunderstands. Yes, it was God who favored Nehemiah. And yes, it was God who went before him and orchestrated every detail. The hand of God was on Nehemiah because he had called Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem following the captivity and rebuild the wall. This was all about God's doing. But the king of Persia made it happen. It was the king that got involved. And he was instrumental in getting Nehemiah all the way to Jerusalem from Susa, which was a distance of many hundreds and hundreds of miles. And, off, and and a lot of that uh, territory was dangerous ground. And so he sent the entire Persian army, along with his own chariots, to escort Nehemiah to his place of destination. And once he was there, he footed the bill. I mean, he told Asaph and all the others, you give Nehemiah whatever he needs for the building project and you put it on my tab. So he was the one who paid for all the materials that it took to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but Nehemiah snuck in there the supplies he needed for his own house. And the king complied, built him a mansion in Jerusalem, and did everything within his power to make sure that Nehemiah was successful in his work. So, we can sum this up and say Nehemiah was pretty amazing, wasn't he? I mean, he did what God asked him to do. He got a burden for God's people. And he acknowledged that they were in trouble and in disgrace. And he decided to do something about it himself. He wasn't content to watch it on the news or to hear stories and reports of what was taking place. He went to Jerusalem, he rolled up his sleeves, he got in the game, and when you read his story, he is responsible for for some pretty impressive accomplishments among the people of God. But here's my point in all this. The reason I've taken so much time to lay this out for you, this is what I want you to, to hear me say. There was greatness in Nehemiah. say that. There was greatness in Nehemiah. One more time. There was greatness in Nehemiah. It was with them when he was in Persia. There was greatness in his heart. There was greatness in his person. But Nehemiah needed somebody to draw and to pull that greatness out of him. He needed somebody to believe in him. He needed someone to invest in him. He needed someone to promote him. And that's where the king came in. The king was the one that God used to pull that greatness out of Nehemiah. Are you getting this? Are you understanding this is so much more than just a history lesson? Are you able to follow along here as I'm trying to communicate this for today? And everything that we're facing in a world around us that offers us so much, and yet the voice of the Holy Spirit is saying to every single one of us, it's time to get in the game. It's time to understand you're not a cupbearer. You're not called to this world system. I can bless you in it. I can favor you in it. But it's not really your ultimate purpose. Your purpose and design is for God. You see, there's greatness in every single one of us. Every single person sitting in this place. There's greatness in you. Now, some of you are going to argue with me. You're going to say, no, there's no greatness in me if you only knew. I'm gonna tell you you're great because the Bible says you're great. And the reason you're great is because the spirit of God resides in you for no other reason. The Bible says it's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that dwells in you. That's the spirit that you have. It's the spirit of God that was in Nehemiah that helped him to do what he was supposed to do. But you know, even though God is with you, And even though God favors you, he has a plan and purpose for your life, just like he did for Nehemiah, you need someone in your life to pull that greatness out of you. You need someone to tap into that greatness and extract it from you, to encourage you and to invest in you and to tell you that you are, just like we sang, who God says you are. That's why it's so important for all of us to get in the game. You know, sometimes I think we misunderstand. The game is not for us. You know, the game time field to play, it's not the time for us to pad our statistics and break records and become the most valuable player and show everybody how talented we are. Those things can happen. But when you get in the game, it's with the determination to stand our post and do the very thing that God has purposed in our lives to do, the very job that God has called us to do. Because when you're determined to do that, in the process, the church of Jesus Christ gets built up. And that's what God is most important. It's most important to him. Now, in closing, I'm going to make a couple of statements. But again, before I make the statements, I want to bring some clarification so that nobody misquotes me or misunderstands me. You know I'm a grace guy. And the only way that we could ever accomplish anything is by the grace of God. How many believe that? The only way that we could ever do anything is by grace. And for every good thing that we do, only because of the grace of God, he gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. He alone is worthy. He alone is excellent. We would be foolish to share any of that credit. That belongs to God I would be not even foolish but ridiculous to think that I have anything coming because of the great things that God has done hear me say this anything good we do is by grace and only God gets the credit but let me make these couple of statements to you one of our staff members Tyler Green works with our children he's our children's director He is an amazing man of God. He is a great minister before the Lord. He's enthusiastic. He's creative. He's passionate. He has a desire to see our children serving the Lord and knowing their God. Let me tell you, one of the reasons why Tyler Green is so great is because Pastor Chris and Megan helped to pull that greatness out of him. When he was younger, they worked with him. They mentored him. They invested in him. They counseled him. They encouraged him. They literally tapped into that greatness, and they pulled that greatness out of him. Hannah Frazier. she's one of our worship leaders here, our young worship leaders. She's a rising star when it comes to worship because God has gifted her so much. She is a great woman of God. She has a heart for worship. She has a desire to honor God. She wants to lead God's people into the high praise of God. Do you know why she's great? One of the reasons why she's so great is because our own worship leader, Phil Smith, has pulled that greatness out of her. It was there. God gifted her. He's encouraging her. He's promoting her. He's investing in her. And he's telling her she can accomplish what God has purposed her to do. Donna Shook, she's an amazing understanding God teacher. She loves her students. She works very hard. She's passionate about the word of God. She has a great desire to see young people standing upon the word of God and living that truth out in their lives, rooted and grounded in in the great things of God. One of the reasons why Donna is so great is because Joy Gruitz has pulled that greatness out of her. Joy has worked with her and mentored her and believed in her and prayed with her and encouraged her. I could go on like this all morning long with a list of name after name after name of staff members, family members, parents, teachers, leaders, volunteers, who have all contributed greatly in the lives of other people. And across the board, they would all say, Oh, I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. It was God. And again, you're absolutely right. It was God. But it was God using people. Because that's what God does. God does not need us. He chooses to use us. He could do the work himself. God could go about this whole thing of evangelism and community a lot different than what we do today if he wanted to. But he chooses us. He chooses people. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Use the greatness that I've given you. Get in the game and pull that greatness out of somebody else. Now, One of the final lessons that Jesus taught to his disciples was just a few hours before he went to the cross. And this was one he really wanted them to understand. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 11, he gathered his disciples together. It was just the disciples, no one else. And he asked them a question. Do you really want to be great? You know, they were arguing among themselves who the greatest was. He said, do you really want to be great? Is that important to you? You want to be an MVP one day? You want to do some significant things for the kingdom of God? Do you really want to be significant and and accomplish things? Then here's the lesson you need to learn the greatest among you is servant of all. Servant. And so when you get into the game, it's not for you, it's for the people around you, it's for the people that God has called you to serve. Because that's what Jesus modeled and the example that he gave us. He served. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, this morning we thank you that this is not all there is. There is so much more on the horizon. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've given to us. Not only living here in the United States of America, but individually, Lord, you have blessed us in so many different ways. You have favored us, Lord. You have protected us. You've basically wrapped us in a bubble. And you have taken us along a path where we have to admit and we have to conclude. That our God is with us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the wealth in so many different dimensions. We thank you, Lord, for the health. We thank you for the gifts that you've given to us. This world has a lot to offer, but in you, there's so much more when we're willing, Lord God, to just follow you, to spend some time in prayer seeking you and getting a burden and then doing what you tell us to do, finding that secret sweet spot place with you, Lord, you could change this world. You could turn it upside down. Because less we lose sight of the fact The church of Jesus Christ is the desire of the world. The church, Lord, is what you're looking to in order to promote this gospel message. The world needs the church. And you have, Lord, a great plan for us. I pray you would use these closing moments, Lord, to speak to our hearts. Let us hear what it is that you're saying. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.